Let us pray. Father God, this may be a familiar passage of scripture to each of us. We pray that you will speak to each of us through the power of your Holy Spirit and through the words of scripture. We bring ourselves before you and we thank you that you know each of our circumstances. And we do pray that in your grace and mercy, you will grant your word to us a word in season. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Acts is an amazing book. When you open up the book of Acts, the picture I have in my mind is you've got the Bible in one hand, and you're putting your running shoes on with the other, uh, because Acts moves very quickly. It begins with Jesus ascending into heaven, the disciples finding a replacement for Judas. There's the whole Pentecost account, the Holy Spirit descending on the disciples, Peter addressing a crowd of thousands. The early church becomes established. Peter launches into a healing ministry. The apostles are persecuted. There's scandal in the church. Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. And the persecuted church begins to scatter. But they're not giving in. Acts chapter 8 verse 4 says, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So by the time you reach chapter 9, and yes, we're only at chapter 9, and you want to draw breath, there's a twist in the story, because no one would have seen this coming. This marvellous story of the conversion of Saul. You're, familiar, you're good people, you are familiar with the story of Acts, and you'll know that we've come across Saul before in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. They dragged him, that is Stephen, out of the city to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was not an innocent bystander who was elected to look after everybody's kit. Chapter 8 begins, And Saul was there, giving approval to Stephen's death. And we move away from that scene of Stephen's death to the ministries of Philip and Simon, and including Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. And what we see here with the book of Acts is this tension between the continued persecution of the early church and the extremely successful ministry of the gospel. And so maybe chapter 8 sets the scene for which Saul felt he had to deal with. the the situation that Saul had to deal with. There were miraculous signs. There was healing. There was deliverance ministry. The gospel was being preached in Samaritan villages. An Ethiopian was asking to be baptized. It's absolutely thrilling, thrilling stuff to read. But if it's your responsibility to stop this, 
as indeed Saul felt it was, he got his work cut out, and it was out of his control. And so we take a deep breath, and we put on our other running shoe, and we dive into chapter 9, and we immerse ourselves in the tension again, which moves from the success of the ministry of the gospel back to its opposition And verse 1 of chapter 9 says this. Meanwhile, yes, we're back at Saul again. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, when we left Saul earlier in Acts, he stood there and watched while Stephen was stoned to death. And during his execution, Stephen prays that those who were responsible for his death would be forgiven. It appears, certainly given how chapter 9 starts anyway, that Saul, even though he was stood there and heard it, was completely unmoved by this prayer. And chapter 8 of Acts captures the tension that I've been speaking about. Success of the gospel, persecution of the church. Because it says this, godly men buried Stephen, but Saul began to destroy the church. The commentator Howard Marshall writes, it would be no easy task to convert such a man. And Luke is hinting here at the remarkable character of Saul's subsequent transformation. Saul was on his own mission, and he was hot on the trail of every single Christian. And so we return to the story of Saul as he journeys to Damascus. His persecution began in Jerusalem. In his mission to destroy the church, he went from house to house, dragging men and women off and putting them into prison. And as he makes his way to Damascus, which he's obviously very determined to do, is there a suggestion here that he's not actually quite satisfied with his success in Jerusalem? Certainly because persecution had caused Christians to flee, Paul was determined to pursue them. He was going to seek them out, and he was going to bring them back to Jerusalem as prisoners. And yet one day, when Saul set out, it was not going to be a normal day at the office for Saul. Jesus was going to intervene that day in a very, very spectacular way. And Saul's life would take a new turn. He would have a change of heart. He would move from persecutor to apostle. Philip Yancey writes, the most surprising converts often make the best crusaders. Former alcoholics can convince others of drinking's dangers. Former drug addicts give the most forceful warnings against drugs. And the book of Acts introduces the most effective Christian missionary of all time. And he turns out to be a former bounty hunter of Christians. 
God steps in and selects Saul to lead the young church. But I'm getting a a bit ahead of myself here. But it has been suggested that Paul may not have had the legal authority to execute the early Christians. The authority that he was given by the Sanhedrin was to extricate them. Paul was determined. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And Damascus is a 150-mile journey from Jerusalem, a significant distance from home. It's, uh, it's not the kind of journey that you would make and then get back home in the evening. It's a long journey. And Damascus was home to a significant number of Jews. There was plenty of work to be done for Saul. And so we imagine Saul on this 150-mile journey to Damascus, and he's almost there. He's almost there. He neared Damascus, is what Acts chapter 9 tells us. He's almost at his destination when he's stopped in his tracks. And suddenly, a light flashed from heaven. Suddenly. There is no clue, and there has been no clue up to this point, that this was going to happen. And if we were watching this story unfold as a film, we would turn to someone and say, well, I never saw that coming, did you? I just never saw that. I just never saw it coming. And this encounter that Saul has, has all the attributes of a divine encounter. The intensely bright light accompanied by a voice Other examples that we may think of in the Bible are the transfiguration, for one. And the voice that speaks to Saul does not say, right, in a commanding manner, stop what you're doing, but rather asks Saul a question, which I find quite interesting. Saul, why do you persecute me? It's a fascinating question. It makes it very personal. And those of you who have to use interview techniques will appreciate that using open questions which cannot be answered with a brief yes or no demand a full answer. So there is Saul left with this question. Why, Saul? Do you persecute me? It's been suggested that this question is important because it indicates that while Saul thought he was just attacking a group of people for what he considered to be a heretical way of worshipping God, he was in fact attacking a group who had a heavenly spokesperson and a representative. To attack the Christian was to attack this heavenly figure. And remember that for Saul, who stood and watched Stephen's execution and was totally unmoved by the prayer of a dying man, such a dramatic encounter was needed to get the message across. That's actually saying, Saul, do you know what? You're attacking me. You're attacking me. 
and it can't continue. And so the command is there to go to the city where Saul's future will be revealed to him. And there is an assumption that Saul will obey this and go if he really wants to serve God as he should. Because Saul thought up to that point he really was serving God. So he went to Damascus and he fasted for three days. Not only would this encounter have been an enormous shock for Saul, but could it be that Saul was fasting as a sign of his penitence? So there's one meanwhile, and then there is another meanwhile. Meanwhile, there is a disciple by the name of Ananias, who was also being encouraged to have a change of heart. He was in Damascus, and the Lord commanded him to go to Saul with a commission to heal him. And Saul was expecting Ananias. He'd received a vision. But we have a problem here. Because Ananias doesn't want to go. And that's understandable. We do not see here the marvellous words from Isaiah's commission. Here I am, Lord. Send me. For Ananias, this is a, a commission which is up for negotiation, I think. Because Ananias would know the name of Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He would know that Saul is an enemy of the church, someone to be avoided at all costs. And yet he's invited to just pop round and call in on him and see how he is and heal him. News travels fast, they say. And Ananias would know exactly why Saul had made his way to Damascus. And so the response of Ananias is quite understandable and perfectly natural. I think so anyway. But Saul was chosen by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And it was not going to be an easy task. And Saul would suffer. The one who caused suffering for Christians would now suffer himself for the sake of Christ. It's strange, isn't it, really, to think that being the bearer of good news could ever be costly. And it certainly proved to be for Saul. Ananias is told to go. I know Martin was talking this morning about the tone of voice that may be used in particular passages and whether it was just go, go. What happens in the encounter between Ananias and Saul, I think is a fantastic piece of scripture. Ananias lays his hands on Saul as he'd been asked to do, but he calls Saul Brother Saul. I don't know if that was in the script, actually. 
How brave and how gracious was Ananias. And Saul regained his sight and was baptized. And no sooner had he been converted, Saul joined the Christians, the early church, and began to witness to Jesus Christ. The one who came to persecute the church began to preach. Don't you love the way that God works? He came to persecute and ended up proclaiming. And very soon he would face opposition. His own life would be in danger and he would have to leave Damascus very soon. He'd been a persecutor of the church, but after a vision of Jesus, he responded to that call to be an apostle who was summoned to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now the expression, a Damascus Road experience, I'm guessing is not a new one to you. It's made its way into everyday language. Its definition is used in reference to an important moment of insight and typically one that leads to a dramatic transformation of attitude or belief. The hymn that we sung earlier, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus, was written by a man called Samuel Trevor Francis, a London merchant, who had a spiritual turning point as a teenager. He was walking locally, actually by the River Thames, and he was contemplating suicide one night. And it was there by the River Thames that he experienced a renewal of faith, perhaps that Damascus Road experience. And he went on to write many poems and hymns and was a preacher as well as a merchant career. Uh, a merchant career. And his hymn speaks of God's love as vast as the ocean, without limits, but a love that is unchanging, that can change us. The Damascus Road experience is an expression sometimes used in circumstances which aren't remotely anything at all to do with faith. They have been used in political circles as well. But I did wonder as I read this uh, in preparation for this evening, could it be that Ananias himself also had a Damascus Road experience? He needed the courage and the grace to heal, to baptise, to pray for the one who had come to harm him and others too. And so we see in this fantastic passage two individuals with their own stories of a change of heart. Both heard clear and loud the voice that spoke to them. They could have chosen to ignore the voice, but they didn't. But I would say that a Damascus Road experience means nothing if it doesn't lead to a change of heart. And the definition of that is to change your mind, to think again, to think 
differently, to behave differently. And so while Saul has the amazing testimony, let's not forget Ananias. Their first encounter is something Saul, then Paul later on in Acts, would record as a very special moment for him. And so it comes as no surprise that God calls all kinds of people. Some whom, if we're really honest, we really struggle with. But what we need to remember is that irrespective of what we think of them, the one who has called them to share the same journey as us is Jesus. And that should influence our attitude to them. Our attitudes can change towards others. I'm mindful um, of a film that's out at the moment about Eddie the Eagle Edwards. Um, And I am old enough to remember the 1988 Olympics where... And I was living in the West Midlands at the time... And Eddie comes from Cheltenham. So we kind of, as Midlanders, think he's a local guy. So we kind of feel he's our champion, you know. But back in 1988, he was looked upon with a fair degree of of ridicule, I have to say. He was laughed at. um, And he got a totally different reception uh, in Calgary. Because he epitomised for them the real essence of an Olympian. There is a film out at the moment, which I'm yet to see, and I'm going to go and see it. And this biopic, which they call them now, has inspired a Guardian journalist to reappraise Eddie the Eagle's life. But it's got a totally different spin on it. It celebrates Eddie the Eagle. No more the ridicule, it celebrates him because of his achievements. What I think is important here with Ananias is the change of heart that he shows before Saul's ministry began. He's not seen the change yet, but he experiences a change of heart before Saul's ministry began. The church cannot thrive if we resist the need for a change of heart. It's not just a one-off experience. We will encounter things in life and in church that will require us to have a change of heart. And so I hope that we're inspired by this account in Acts this evening And to think about whether God is calling us, is calling you to a change of heart in a particular area of your life. So let us come before God in prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your challenge. We thank you for the journey to which you call us. 
and we thank you that we do not travel alone. You do not promise an easy journey, but you promise to sustain us and give us all that we need. You know where each of us is in that journey and the various challenges that we face at this time. And if you are calling us to a change of heart, we pray that you will give us the courage that you gave to Ananias. Give us ears to hear and a heart that is willing to obey, whose you long to work in us and through us, that we may become the people and the church that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.